listening to The Mark Steiner Show on WEAA 88.9 FM. Today on the program, we'll bring you some of our favorite segments from the past two decades of The Mark Steiner Show. What you're about to hear is a pre-record, so we can't accept any calls. Please send us any feedback to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome. You know, many of us have heard stories and had conversations about how important the arts are in education, how important the arts are uh, in our lives, in our children's lives, uh, what it means to be able to play a piano, what it means to be able to paint a picture, what it means to be able to have a creative side to who you are. But there's a whole body of thought now that goes beyond that and goes beyond that importance to talk about how integrating, truly integrating the arts into Our educational curriculums can alter the way kids learn, enhance the way they learn, uh, and actually changes the way our brain functions in the process of that learning. And that's what we're going to talk about this hour. It's not the first time we've done it, but this is growing and growing and growing. Dr. Marielle Hardiman has been a guest on the show many times. She's Assistant Dean of Urban School Partnerships at the Johns Hopkins University. She was the principal of uh, Roland Park uh, elementary middle school for 10 years? 12. 12 years. 12 years. I knew it was a, a, a length of time. time. 12 years. Uh, she's author of Connecting Brain Research with Effective Teaching, the Brain Targeted Teaching Model. And uh, she created th- this, uh, became an advocate for a pedagogy that's based on cognitive neuroscience that they call NeuroEd, uh, that uh, she helps run the institute. And we'll talk about that and join the Neuroeducation Initiative at the Hopkins School of Education. We're also joined by Dr. Charles Lim, who is Director of Research for the Johns Hopkins School of Education's Neuroeducation Initiative. He's Associate Professor of Otolaryngology, ear, nose, and throat. What's that got to do with the brain? We're about to find out. At Johns Hopkins Medical School and a faculty member at the Peabody Conservatory of Music. And Charles and welcome. Good to have you here as well. Thanks for having me. Let's just start very basically here for a moment. The idea of arts and education is something we hear over and over again. And even if you have said to me, if you've said to me at other times in the past in schools, there's always the flavor of the month. Every time I interview a new superintendent, a new CEO, they have another idea about what they're going to institute this year to change the way we teach our children. And it becomes tiring for parents, teachers, and students, I think. And arts have always, has always been one of those one of those uh, things that comes up over and over again um, and has this touchy-feely quality. But talk about how you're separating just the that from the science and how you're approaching this and how this came about for our listeners, for you. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, so first of all, I probably wouldn't start by saying that um, there has been a well-documented narrowing of the curriculum over time with high-stakes accountability, and the arts have suffered. So... Um, They've suffered in that um, many schools have lost arts positions, which means that their children are not getting um, as much art education as I think we would all like them to have. So I'd like to really talk about um, the arts in schools in three different ways. The first is to have discrete art programs, that is art teachers in schools Mm -hmm providing children with a variety of um, arts experiences from music, vocal, instrumental music, visual arts, performing arts. And I think that's critical in every school. The second is to have the children taking advantage of the cultural institutions, and especially in Baltimore, that's rich with them. So 
um, the symphonies and the museums and the teaching artists coming into schools, um, performances, also another component that's important. But what I want to talk about where, where my work focuses the most is in arts integration. And so the way I, I define that is that the arts are actually used as a teaching tool to teach content to children. It's really enmeshed in the pedagogy of instruction. And so instead of studying any content, math, science, social studies, in what I might view as a traditional way, which might be the children are learning out of textbooks and then filling out worksheets, um, embellishing that. I'm not saying get rid of traditional instruction, but embellishing that with having children have um, multiple experiences in the arts to help them um, learn the content better and in ways that might be more joyful. And, you know, we believe that um, it would help children remember the content better, short-term and long-term. I think we have a lot of anecdotal information about that. And um, at Hopkins in our NeuroEd initiative, one of our goals is to actually test that arts integration through controlled designs. I want to get into the testing and also really probe more deeply the idea of what arts integration really means. I think people don't can't put their hands around that idea, so I want to probe that. But first, let me turn to turn to Dr. Charles Lim. And I, one of the things that, that brought you to uh, the attention of many, to me, was that uh, this is your brain on jazz study that you did, uh, and that got you into this in some ways. Talk a bit about that, because first of all, let me ask this question for our listeners: You're an otolaryngologist, yes. which means you're an ear, nose, and throat physician. Yes. So, what are you doing messing with the brain? Is the question people would ask you first. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, I'll just explain it to you the way it happened. So the reason why I am an ear, nose, throat specialist is actually because of my fascination with music. And so I've been a lifelong musician. I've always been... What do you play? Uh, a saxophone. Saxophone. Yeah. I've always been obsessed with sound and hearing, literally. I mean, to a degree that is is hard to explain. I just think about it all the time. And when you're a kid, you're doing that. Um, you're finding relationships between music and what it means to, to be alive. But then when you start thinking about a career... I sort of came down to this fork, you know, do I become a musician or do I actually do something different? And uh-huh. what I wound up doing was going into medicine. And uh, in medical school, you know, you learn a lot of neat things. But for me, the ear really captivated my attention. And it's no surprise. Um, I just wanted to understand how we hear. And so I decided to go into otolaryngology as a field and then further forward to go into neurotology where I'm really treating high-level um, disorders of the brain that are uh, sorry, disorders of the ear and hearing that are very, very complex and using pretty sophisticated surgical techniques. Now, while I was doing that kind of clinical work, I never lost sight of the fact that the reason why I was there was because I wanted to understand complex sound perception. So I began to transfer some of my research efforts directly into the study of complex sounds. So I wound up going to the NIH, National Institutes of Health, where I studied brain imaging, real-time brain imaging, using something called functional MRI um, to look at the brains of musicians as they were actively playing music. And so that's how you have an ear doctor who's studying the brain and now talking about education. It's somewhat roundabout, but there's there's a, a path that makes some sense. So but then, how about your, your um, this jazz study? Talk about how you entered that and what you discovered. Sure. So as a saxophonist, um, I, I play jazz a lot. That's the music that I kind of grew up playing, and it's one of the things I, I Good really... Good taste. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, and so, you know, jazz is this, is this musical art form that is unlike 
most other um, art forms to the extent that improvisation really dominates um, the form of the music. I mean, m- improvisation exists in just about every musical genre, but in jazz, it's taken to a higher level. And so from my perspective as a, as a listener and as a player, you know, forget about the science for a, for a minute. I mean, musically, it's just astonishing stuff. I mean, when you listen to a, a legendary jazz recording or you see a performance live, you can just tell that there's just some magic taking place that you are lucky to be able to witness because you may never see or hear something like that again. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's improvised music, the, the next question is, you know, if, especially if you're a non-musician, you sort of watch someone improvise and you realize that they just made that up on the spot. You start thinking, wow, where is that coming from? Where is, this, where is the origin of all of this music that pours out of a musician? That's the question that fascinated me. And well, I'm going to come back to what you found uh, as we explore arts and education and, and, but, and, and not arts and education, but how arts affects learning is really the issue we're talking about here. I'm going to marry these two guests here in a, in a figurative sense <laughs> uh, and, and, and the work you're doing. So when you – so Charles, when you were doing these neurological studies of jazz musicians and you were using a, um, an, M- an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging machine – Oh, you don't call it machine, do you? What do you call them? Oh, machine. Yeah. To, um, to, to study jazz musicians, you, were, you, were, you, you had them – these machines were recording things as they were playing. That's As right. they were working, as they were creating. Exactly. So what did you find? So I, I, think, I think before I can tell you what I find, I have to explain what they did because okay. it doesn't really make sense otherwise. All right. And so fMRI is functional MRI, as you said, and it's a way to take a musician in a very unnatural environment – to have them try to do a musical task. Now, that in and of itself raises a, a ton of questions. You know, is it really a valid representation of what's taking place artistically and so forth? But t- to summarize, a, a, to make a several-year story very short, <laughs> we found musicians, piano players, that were willing to come inside a brain scanner and play jazz in this environment. And then we designed a piano keyboard that could be played. Um, it had no magnetic metal in it. It actually had uh, – it made no sound. It produced sound by sending computer impulses to a computer that then triggered real-time piano s- samples that matched the note that was being pl- pressed. And then it sent it out to electrostatic earphones, which are MRI compatible. So there's all sorts of stuff that has to be done. To, to make it worse, you're lying down on your back, and you have to be absolutely still. And so there's – you know, it's it's certainly no – you know, I, I always like to say it's, it, jazz – the. FMRI scanner is no village vanguard. So, yeah. <laughs> so very quickly, before we go, go, come back to the arts and education thing, I just want to kind of understand this for our listeners and for myself as well. So, so the jazz musician, is he, hearing the, he or she hearing the music as they're playing it? Mm-hmm. They yeah, absolutely. It. absolutely. So they're on their back. So it's an unreal situation unless you're like at a drink so lying at the beach. So it's physically unnatural in that you're lying down. Right. But beyond that, I've been – I because I was the one that developed this setup, I, I was in that scanner for hours, it actually becomes a really natural experience after a few minutes. You, you just start playing piano. So what did you find? Well, t- t- give us a sense of the, of the results of this study of jazz musicians and what you discovered the brain was doing as they were playing. Sure. So the basic purpose of the study was to figure out what brain mechanisms were taking place during improvisation versus memorized music. And so that's how we were trying to sort of isolate creativity. I mean, it's a really ambitious question to say, well, how can we image creativity real time? And I don't by any means want to simplify this process, which is so complex, so complicated. On the other hand, if you have two high-level 
you know, cognitive functions. One is to play an instrument, and the other one is to play an instrument but improvising. You actually have a, you have a nice control situation in which you've kind of eliminated out brain activity that's responsible for just playing the instrument, and you can start sort of subtracting out and honing in on those areas of the brain that are really more relevant for creative improvisation rather than performance per se. So, Marielle Hardiman, what does this have to do with the work you want to do, or that you are doing, uh, in terms, because you, you work in the same neuroeducation initiative, what does this have to do with what you're doing in terms of integrating arts into an academic curriculum, not taking a painting class, but putting arts within algebra, geometry, history, grammar? Well, great question. I have to say, when I first heard uh, Charles Lim presenting at the uh, School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Brain Science Institute um, seminar, I made immediate connections into how I'd love to study education um, because the same issues um, were rolling around, I guess, in my brain, and that is um, how would a creative act within the teaching arena differ from children being taught in a very mechanized memorization kind of way. Um, and so to me, it was almost the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. more complicated probably to study. But um, we're actually looking to study that. And that was one of the reasons that um, we asked Charles to join us, that, you know, creativity in thinking and um, innovation in thinking is one of the areas being recognized now as one of the most important attributes in the workforce. Yet, so, children children are, are really focused on bubbling in an answer <laughs> often in schools. And right. so my interest was really in, so if we, if we can really see differences, um, the same kinds of differences, when children are performing um, more creative acts versus uh, memorized, memorized kinds of activities. Um, how, how does what does that show us about teaching and learning? And and so I think you know as I said before, we we would like to be doing research on a lot of levels. One is at the at this brain scan level, um, similar to what Charles has done with jazz musicians, but then also. Um, in the behavioral level right there in the schools. How, how does arts integration differ from um, traditional instruction? So if the, again, coming before we come back to the nitty-gritty of how you integrate, what it really means to integrate arts into academics, I think people don't have a handle on that, and I'm not sure I do, even though I tried it as a teacher years ago, and I'll give you a story about that and see how it fits into the modern world. Tell us very quickly, Charles Lim, if you could, what the results of the test said to you about the functioning of the brain and how it changes or does things you didn't expect in brain activity when you had these jazz musicians playing. Sure. So we looked at professional players. These are expert musicians. No, right. We weren't looking at amateurs. And so we were talking about really studying people that were highly creative or highly comfortable in a creative idiom. And so that, I think, is relevant. What we saw was three main things. The, the prefrontal cortex, and that's really the part of the brain that separates humans from animals. It's where we have this probably the seat of conscious, uh, consciousness and really um, where we can have a sense of self even. Um, has many areas of the brain. They're multifunctional, very complex. The areas of the brain that were linked to self-expression and autobiographical na- narrative, those areas went up in activity during improvisation. And that said what to you? That improvisation in jazz can be a way of somebody telling their own musical story. So, Marielle, so you're not going to... So kids are not going to be learning sitting in an MRI machine. 
So how does the work that Charles Lim is doing affect what you're trying to show or what you're trying to discover? I think that we see the arts as a, as a portal to creativity. And, um, you know, coming back to the idea that we really want to foster in children creative and innovative thinking. And so, um, you know, how how do we take those same principles of really being improvisational within a teaching situation, um, you know, encouraging children to have open-ended, divergent kinds of questions and kinds of activities, um, rather than more traditionally um, that, that sort of convergent, you pick the right answer and you write in the right <laughs> response. And, right. you know, education's moving more toward that. And, you know, we understand that. Um, and I'm not knocking accountability testing. I think it's important that we know how children are performing and reading math tests. And it's important that communities know how schools do. Um, I don't think that's, though, the only measure that we should be looking at for successful schools. I think we should be looking at how children are being fostered within the classroom and in the school for creative thinking, and um, and I think the arts are important to that. Are you making the argument that somehow, and this is what I think you're making the argument about, that somehow learning with arts integrated into an academic curriculum, now this is a separate subject again, so I keep saying it over and over again to be clear about it, somehow affects changes, alters, heightens a student's or any of, any of our abilities to learn, to understand, to remember. Is that what we're saying? That is what we're saying. And I think that while there's a lot of anecdotal information about the fact that that's true, um, part of what we want to do at the university is to um, design those studies and conduct those studies so that we have that empirical evidence. Again, I think you could talk to a lot of educators um, who will tell you that they absolutely see that that's true each and every day, that when children are learning in more joyful, artful ways, that um, they not only um, retain the information better, but they enjoy learning more. And kind of coming back to creativity, um, it really almost goes beyond that they can learn more about a content area. The arts really help um, in other areas as well, Um, persistence to task, um, collaboration, um, the, the very things that improvisational jazz players do, right? That that kind of conversation that occurs that that ends up in um, really innovative thinking and what I would think is deep learning. Let me open the phones for a moment here and have a couple callers come in and then come back to the conversation and the questions I have of this and kind of explore this in real detail as we talk about uh, um, the, the role of uh, arts in teaching that – actually have a change in the way our brains function and how we learn enhances it. We're not talking about taking a painting class, I'll say again. We're talking about integrating arts into the curriculum. We're talking with Dr. Mario Hardiman, who you just heard, uh, who is one of the uh, co-directors um, of the uh, – of, of, why am I keep blocking on the name of the thing – of the Neuroeducation Initiative at Johns Hopkins um, School of Education. She's director of research there, associate professor uh, – she's I mean, excuse me, assistant dean of Urban School Partnerships at Hopkins – uh, author of the book, uh, Effective Teaching, the Brain-Targeted Teaching Model. Dr. Charles Lim is with us, who's in, uh, professor of otolaryngology at Hopkins on the faculty of Peabody uh, and director of research for the Johns Hopkins School of Education's Neuroeducation Initiative. Conte in Baltimore County, you're on the air. Yes, hi, Mark. Look, thank you for this opportunity. First of all, you know, I would just like to say, uh, you know, I would love to work with your guests in there. First of all, 
I'm originally from West Africa, Liberia, and uh, you know I have a master's in special education and uh, um, you know a BA in uh, in piano and um, percussion. And uh, you know what I want to say is that exactly what they're saying is so true because right now I teach kids from four to twelve years old African djembe drumming. Um, you know when young kids understand rhythmic patterns, you know they get to understand proportion because you know just think about it. Um, you know when it comes to math, you know what is slope? The formula for slope is rise of a run. So um, you know people who understand patterns, they understand rhythm, and and you, 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 when you understand rhythm, you, you know then you know how to improvise. You know when to come into the song. You know when to back up. You know you know when to play loud. You know when to play soft. You so really understanding patterns. Uh, you know, understanding rhythm. I mean, you know, it's all about. I mean, um, you can teach that. You know, using you know drumming, and uh, you know, it goes all the way up in you know, algebra and um, you know geometry. So you know, this is a very very good topic. You know, this is something you know that you know that people need to hear and um, you know get their young kids learning some kind of music instrument. You know, at a very early age, especially drumming, because you know it's loud and, and kids hmm. have a lot of energy. Yeah. Conte, thanks so much, Mario. Thank you. Well, I would like to really commend the caller. I think he gave a wonderful example of arts integration, um, you know, talking about music and how it would impact um, a child's understanding of mathematics. So, bravo. Hank, you're on the air. Good evening, young man. How are you doing today? Well, Hank, welcome. To your extinguishing guest, I'd like to, uh, first of all, give a big up to the young man, who the young caller who just called. I don't understand the science of it, but this is what I do understand, right? The average child can repeat, the average four to five-year-old can repeat almost each and every song that he hears, whether it be hip-hop, rap, country, whatever. He can repeat all of the music, so the memorization skills have to be there because you can't remember the word cat, but you can remember a whole entire song, right? So I, I, I definitely think that music and art should be integrated into the classroom. Another thing is this, right? I have a program that I'm trying to start, and I would really, really like to help. I really like to help with um, maybe one or two art instructors and a music instructor. I'm, I'm trying to start a program where I throw little parties and events to collect money to pay for kids who wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to have music class or art classes because it's not in the school. We outside partying all the time, so let's party for a car, right? So what, you, need, so what do you? Uh, I, need, I'm, I need I need some teachers. That's what I need first. I need some teachers. Marielle, someone I, who's willing to teach. I'd like to refer the caller to a wonderful organization in Baltimore City nonprofit called Arts Every Day, and their mission is to bring the arts and arts integration to schools. So um, they have a wonderful website. Uh, just Google Arts Every Day, and I think they could um, help the caller think about how to put that kind of a program together. Hank, thanks for calling it once again. Always good to hear from you, and uh, good luck with that. Sounds like a great Thank idea, you and you should call much. that group. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what you were just saying about what Hank just said, I really want to begin to understand, our listeners understand, people listening to this program, what it means to integrate arts into education. And I, I remember years ago, a long time ago, more than years than I want to remember, when I was teaching a, um, uh, the, what would then be a junior high school, <laughs> a junior high school uh, history class. And it was an American history class. The texts were okay, but they were pretty boring. So to change the text, what we did was, uh, what I did was to um, have the students begin to write out scenes and act 
the history and write the history in the scenes, take characters and develop characters out of the scenes, make uh, costumes that came from the scenes, uh, and just kind of build an environment that affected that piece of history. We did that for a while. And I remember the principal back then, who was in New Hampshire, was, was uh, like beside himself saying, you know, that, what are you doing? <laughs> it's not education. You're not teaching our children. So, But now that in some senses was to me what arts education might be. But I'm not sure really how that works in the long run. I mean how you take a student who let's say may be more attuned to the arts and translate that into a student can use the arts to understand the academic work in front of him or her. That's what I think most people don't – making that leap is what people have a difficult time doing. In understanding. Well, I'll address it first and then maybe throw it to Charles to, to talk about it from a different angle. But, um, you know, what you described is really – you remember that because it was an activity that was not in the ordinary sense, right? It right. was an activity that had to do with the arts. And, you know, you, you talk to a lot of people who say, you know, what I remember from my school the most or activities that I did that embedded the arts in that. So, you know, again, we, we really believe that, that the arts do help with long-term retention and memory because more of um, the human mind and brain is engaged. Um, you know, there's a lot of research to be done to, to really be able to say, yes, that is absolutely going to cause long-term retention and memory of content. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think anecdotally we have, we have a lot of such stories. Um, so, you know, getting back to how it works, um, you know, it, it's really a matter of teachers – uh, classroom teachers being comfortable with embedding the arts into their instructional strategies, um, doing it either on their own or really collaboratively is the best. Um, I would probably like at this point to talk about some schools that have done it really well, and one in particular, you mentioned Roland Park Elementary Middle School, was just named as one of the five schools in the country that are, is, is a national school of distinction from the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts in, um, in, in the arts, how they provide arts to children across multiple domains. And it's a wonderful honor for Roland Park, um, especially because most of the schools traditionally that receive that honor are art-themed schools. So they're, you know, like a school for the arts. But um, Roland Park is an academic school. So to get that distinction means that they have really integrated the arts in ways that are really, really joyful and wonderful. Uh, Mount Royal Elementary Middle is another school, uh, and there are there are others in Baltimore. If you go onto the website of Arts Every Day, you'll you'll see what other schools are doing this as well. And I guess we're taking a short break here, but I guess I want to kind of pursue some more and with our listeners is how it actually works. How you tell a teacher this is going to work. How you put it in the middle of a class. And how you know, Charles Lim, whether it's working, whether in fact it does enhance memory and retention of the academic work that our students are supposed to be doing and how that kind of integrates itself that way. We'll come back to all that after this very brief break. So stay with us and join us. I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, the website is www.mecu.com. We'll be right back. And you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show. And this is just a reminder that we're listening to an archive of The Mark Steiner Show this hour and cannot accept any calls. But please send your thoughts to talk at steinershow.org 
or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Now back to our segment. We are talking about the Neuroeducation Initiative and the Movement for Arts Integrated Education. Uh, Dr. Mariel Hardiman is one of the co-founders of the Neuroeducation Initiative along with Susan Mag Salmon. Uh, she is Assistant Dean of Urban School Partnerships at Johns Hopkins University, former principal for 12 years at Rollins Park Elementary Middle School, and author of the book, uh, Effective Teaching, the Brain-Targeted Teaching Model. Dr. Charles Lim is Director of Research for the Johns Hopkins School of Education's Neuroeducation Initiative. He's Associate Professor of Otolaryngology uh, at the Johns Hopkins Medical School and a member of the faculty at the Peabody Conservatory of Music. And we were talking, Mariella, just about the, 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 the uh, question left hanging about how, what, this, what it really means to integrate the arts into education. Great. How you you asked me, how does it work? I'm going to start with how it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. So w- what is not really good arts integration is a lesson very traditionally taught, and at the end of the lesson, a teacher hands out some crayons and paper and says, now draw a picture of what we just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the caller gave an example of good arts integration. Um, you know, at some of the schools I've worked with, certainly at Roland Park, we use the brain-targeted teaching model, which you've been referencing. It's part of the book that I wrote. Um, and it's a pedagogical model that really focuses on a, a different segments of effective teaching, um, not just the arts, but it, it helps teachers to see how the arts fit into a larger framework of having children master information and then apply it meaningfully. And and so I think that's important, whether it's that model or another, that the teachers see how the arts are enmeshed in teaching and not just pasted on um, at the end of a lesson because they're supposed to be doing it. And so, you know, it, it, it could be, um, you know, a wrap, as one of the callers talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could be, again, infusing music within what they're learning. It could be a skit. It could be movement. Visual arts, having children studying, um, for example, uh, the parts of a flower, um, and then in art class, botanical drawings and bringing those two f- domains together. Um, so there, there are so many examples, really, that um, you know would embed all of those art forms into a teaching practice, a teaching lesson. And there are wonderful organizations right here in Maryland um, – Arts Education in Maryland Schools is another great organization that really fosters arts integration. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does take training, um, I think. I think that uh, really good arts integration means that teachers understand uh, that it is not just about the art form itself, but it is about how the art form helps to uh, right. Develop the content and then develop the skills, the persistence, the collaboration skills, the the deep thinking skills that are often not taught in isolation of the arts. And arts really can um, promote that kind of thinking. Charles? You know, I think what the first few callers pointed out is what we all know, which is that the arts or something like music is really an intuitive whole brain activity. And, you know, as this notion that children are innately musical and can learn things musically that in a structured, traditional pedagogical setting they would struggle with. It just says something about the fact that when you turn off certain brain mechanisms, maybe you you enable others and really harness the potential of the brain. And most of us know that humans don't really use the full potential of their brain. Now, let's just use music as an example because it's something that I'm very comfortable with. Music, you know, you can view it as auditory math. You can view it as auditory numbers. You can view it as auditory language. I mean, the parallels between what music is, I think it tends to be reduced 
to entertainment when when being discussed in sort of social circles or you know when you think about music in the stores and you hear it on the radio it's just entertainment but if you step away from the notion of music just as fun i'm not saying it's not fun it's absolutely fun right but music is the most complex auditory stimulus that there is there is no form of sound that challenges the brain the way music does and that same statement can be said true of any art form in its own domain in the same way that looking at an eye chart as a test of vision is a very poor representation when you're comparing looking at a masterpiece of art with all of its complex colors and shapes and forms. There, there's a difference between artistic perception and generic sensory perception. And harnessing the fact that art elevates our brain, takes our brain to another place where we're really operating at a, a more difficult, uh, you know, conceivably synaptically at a neuronal level, faster more upregulated place mm-hmm. says something about the fact that we shouldn't ignore that. We certainly shouldn't take for granted that it is only useful for fun. Now, well, I have a question to kind of, no pun intended, integrate what the two of you said for a moment <laughs> but, and see how that works. But let me go to the phone to you first at 410-319-8888. Uh, first to Charles and Towson. Yes, hello. Hi, Charles. You're on the air. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. Um, I think the other gentleman's name is also Charles. Charles Lim, yes. Yes, and so it's interesting because he actually said some of the very same things I was going to say. Um, as a music educator for many years, um, one of the challenges that we always have found is having to defend arts education, even on its own merit. I, I think it's wonderful to integrate it into the other subjects, but it's at times frustrating that it has to be defended as if the pursuit of it on its own merit were not enough. Now, as that gentleman mentioned, in music particularly, because that's my area, we are multitasking and encompassing all of the other subjects, many of them from science to physical movement and all those other things. So inherent to the nature of the arts, is doing those things. And I believe um, I read it's one of the Asian cultures, it may be Korea, where the very first subject that they teach children in preschool is music because it encompasses all these other subjects. So it is frustrating that in this country we do just delegate the arts to, to entertainment and we don't, many of us don't even conceptualize the educational um, foundation of it, and the fact that as we study music in school, you know, in college, we've got to study the history of it, the theory of it, you know, I remember right. college, and they say, oh, well, you've got to do is practice. Well, I've got to practice and study and do all these other things. So I, I think it's great what it is that you're promoting and just want to, um, you know, applaud that. Thank you so much, Charles. Uh, it would be interesting. I think maybe one of the one of the results, if this actually took hold in our education systems, would be the greater enhancement of arts as a separate piece of the curriculum as well. I mean, that's you know that's something that that could be a byproduct of actually learning how to integrate arts into a, a curriculum. Absolutely, raising yeah, I mean, the importance of the arts. Truth be told, we understand so little from a cognitive or neurologic perspective of what how we perceive the arts, let alone how we produce it. From a scientific perspective, there's maybe no greater tool than the art to unravel the mysterious workings of the brain. If you want to study, for example, how we hear something beautiful, you're not going to get it by testing doot, 
That's just not going to do it. You have to go listen to Beethoven, and then you have to see what's happening in the brain when it's on, and so forth. So, uh, that, uh, to me, that's very that's fascinating. But the, 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 I, I, the, that uh, that to understand that, and that if you have a theoretical model or a or an idea about how this actually does function, if it could then be kind of tested out in the work you're doing, and kind of debated. Mm-hmm. And looked at. And you're talking about changing the way we look at how our brain works and how art enhances the function of our thinking and being. You know, neurologically. You, me- you mentioned kind of offhand. You know, we're not going to we're not going to test children learning in the scanner, but we might. But we okay? might. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's really no reason why we can't. We're testing musicians playing jazz in a scanner. That's pretty ludicrous. Now, I'll tell you that part of the reason, it's not that these questions haven't always been fascinating. It's that we haven't always had the techniques to actually study them. And so scientifically in the past 15 years, functional MRI has really emerged as the dominant method of studying complex cognitive behaviors from a neurologic perspective. I mean, it's a way to image the brain during just about any complex cognitive task, whether it's music, whether it's painting, whether it's teaching, whether it's learning. Let me return to the phones, and then I'll come back to my integrated question here. Uh, Dana, you're on the air. Hi. How are you? This is a great conversation. I wanted to comment on two parts. Um, one, that there there is testing of this nature already going on here in Baltimore. So, and for a long time, the Walbert School of Baltimore incorporates the arts into every facet of the developmental curriculum. The children, I only have a second grader, so I really don't know all the way up through how this works in high school, but the children in this school actually learn a lesson orally for two hours in the morning. It's called their morning lesson. And then they are creating their own textbooks. They do the art for the textbooks. They write for the textbooks. They sing songs incorporated to their morning lesson. And their mathematics is incorporated with songs. And the entire curriculum of the Waldorf School already does this. So that's one place to go see sort of how this is affecting the kids. And these kids are fabulous. And then secondly, the Children's Course of Maryland is doing a study out at a Gaithersburg school. It's a five-year longitudinal study where they've, they're teaching children. There's a, there's a chorus curriculum in most of our schools, but they're teaching children to actually read music, and they are actually going to be studying the test scores based on these kids who are from kindergarten through fourth grade learning to read music through a five-day choral music program. And so hopefully those results are going to also be out there to pan out and show just how important this is to our just to our educational system. But, but the Walter School right here in Baltimore is already doing this. They've been doing it for for tens of hundreds, of not hundreds, but they've been around, you know. We're in Baltimore for 30 years, for 40 years at least yeah. almost, right? right? Yeah, yeah, and they're they're doing it, and these kids are wildly successful, and I am, I'm confident it's because of all of this. Oh, I've, I've seen the studies about Waldorf kids once they get to college often outperform their fellow students in college. Absolutely. And they absolutely. don't learn how to read until the third grade. But, but, exactly. That's not true. But, but well, it, my, I, it was true when my kids went to Waldorf because <laughs> they went there. They, um, you know, but, but they, uh, they've they already got it. Like, it's the best kept secret in town. Uh, and so, Maria, would you respond to that? I think the Waldorf is a wonderful example of, of what we're talking about. But, I mean, about the other, have you heard of the other things they're testing where these programs are going on in Gaithersburg and... You know, there is a growing body of research um, that looks at children who are studying an art form and how that maps into um, reading and math, um, what they call near or far transfer, right? So um, the, the Dana Foundation had a consortium a few years ago, and our 
um, the uh, first summit that Susan Magzaman and I sponsored, Learning Arts in the Brain, brought those researchers to Baltimore um, and a few others, and they talked about their research um, in various domains. Most of it was music, um, but, but some in the visual arts, and how that mapped into increased attention for children, um, better geometry skills, reading. Um, but arts integration is different. And, you know, at the end of the roundtable, what we heard was um, that's good and we need more research into how learning a discrete art form um, changes or impacts education in other subjects. But what we heard from the participants and the teachers was, you know, that's good for kids who can get that much art form. And and in many of these studies, the kids got a lot of art form, whether it was music or whatever it was, instrumental often. Um, But what about about the child who won't ever have that much art? Um, And that's why we were interested in studying arts integration. Um, yes. So there's two lines of research, I think, you know, what, studying a particular art form and how that um, does map into other areas of cognition and then studying arts integration and how that helps learning. And I agree with the last caller, actually, too. I want to mention um, about arts for art's sake people talk about often. I think that's why I started your program, Mark, by saying we need discrete art programs in right. schools, you know, so we don't we don't want to have to justify that the arts need to be there because they do anything except create joy for children. I mean that's important. Um, but I think as Charles mentioned, um, there's so much that we don't know and that we can study about how the arts really do um, map into so many other areas of cognition and learning that I think you know it's a, an exciting area to study. So is there a connection back, on the way back to the phones here? Um, Crystal and Darren, you're the next two callers up. Um, between the the idea that people have written about that mathematicians, physicists are often also great musicians, reading music, studying math, that there's a correlation towards the two. And extrapolating that out to a larger population, does that fit into this idea of arts integration? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, the, the idea that that, that that kind of learning is compatible, that it feeds into one another. Does that fit into this notion? Or is there something totally separate and different? I don't think it's totally separate, but I also don't think it's that simplistic. Okay. Things like um, statements such as that, you yeah. know, that there's always an association. Not between, always, yeah. but, but yeah. They're, they're really hard to actually design an experiment around. Now, anecdotally, sort of casually, pretty much everyone realizes that there is, you know, music is full of mathematics. It's you. You cannot understand music without realizing that it has such a logical structure that is really. I mean, from a mathematical perspective, it's elegant. It's just a beautiful form of math. You don't have to study math to study the music, but if you actually think about the musical structure, you can't ignore the fact that there is math at its foundation. And so, you could understand how developing that part of your brain musically might help you with other other forms of complex kind of operations like mathematics. On the other hand, you could also understand if you have a, a predisposition towards liking mathematics that you might prefer something like music as your chosen art form. And so I've seen a lot of physicians, for one, that are highly analytical mm-hmm. and highly musical. Um, to, to, on, well, let me go back to the phones, then I'll come back to my question here. Crystal, you're on the air. Very good. I was a student in Baltimore City Public Schools, mm-hmm. and um, when I took 
as I observed, when I took art classes in elementary or junior high school, extracurricular activities as violin, piano, ballet, I did better in school itself. Um, when I didn't, I didn't do so well. And when I grew up, became um, an artist in residence and, um, and then a teacher in the Baltimore City school system. And I had to just by nature integrate, you know, what I know about the arts into the classroom. And it worked, you know, through pictures and, and being able to write from, from your images in your mind, mm-hmm. through music and be able, you know, to touch through music. And, and I was able to make life-to-life connections with the students. So I, I totally advocate, you know, and, and am an advocate for, for arts integration in the school system, or in general. Crystal, thanks for the comment. I think that's an important comment to make. I, I, Charles, go ahead, please. You know, I think that's evocative of what the ORCIDS program is trying to do, which is to... At the symphony. Yeah, run th- through the Baltimore Symphony, really. Um, Dan Trey has been the person who's been most responsible for right. it, where we're bringing music instruction to kids that just don't have the opportunity to get it. It's right now only in, at Lockerman Bundy uh, Elementary School, but having visited there and observed it, I mean, it's a phenomenal It's a phenomenal process that you can... It's, it's very obvious that that's going to have a positive impact on all forms of pursuits that have nothing to do with music. And just like that caller said, I'm not surprised at all that, that she noticed that there was a correlation between her involvement in the arts and her performance in school because it's engaging the brain. And that's what I think children are lacking is, is a healthy form of engagement to really keep them away from the unhealthy forms. Um, I, I want to um, pursue something that one of the – part of the article was in The Urbanite. It was interesting to me, and, and, and uh, um, a lot of it was. But this particular thing was for this one teacher in the article who, seemed, who supported the whole idea of an arts-integrated uh, education. Her name was Anne Begg Marino, a seventh-grade teacher at Mount Royal Elementary Middle. She was quoted in the school – saying that she thinks it works, but it's done right, arts, arts integration helps, um, that uh, some of the worst kids in class are angels of, in mind because they're like doing something they're good at. Um, you have sixth graders who read on a fourth grade level, and if you give them a sixth grade work, they're automatically going to act out because they're frustrated, but you don't have to draw the perfect picture for it to look fabulous, is what she was talking about. But she said, there are, there's not, a, is it practical, is what she was asking, in, our moder- in the way we run our, our public schools. Because she said there's just not enough planning time to really fit in arts integration. And there's too much emphasis on the test and test results and teaching to the test. And, 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 you know, and that, that the way our model is now, it is almost impossible to kind of create an arts integrated curriculum. Antithetical to how we expect teachers to work. What do you think of that? Well, I'll jump in here first and then throw Please it to do. Charles. But uh, <laughs> l- let me say that I, I probably agree with the teacher that um, I think it does take t- planning time. And I think the best instances of arts integration um, are when you have the art teacher working with the classroom teacher and in a collaborative way. And that does take time. It takes it takes team planning time. Um, secondly, it takes longer often to um, implement the lessons mm-hmm. than it would if you're just rolling through the book and you know take the end of chapter test and next chapter. Um, so so I think we're coming to really larger issues now, and that is um, you know the issues of accountability and what we view as a successful education for children. Um, you know, again, I'm 
all for accountability, and I'm all for making sure that children can read and compute um, and that we measure that. But I think we have to measure more than that. I, I'd love to see a real national definition of what is a successful school. And my guess is that if you ask policymakers um, what they want for their own children, they're going to describe a school that is much richer than simply, I want my child to have proficient scores in reading and math. So uh, very quickly, may I ask the two of you, do either of you know of a school that is doing what we're talking about here? that we just described, where teachers actually have enough time to really integrate this, where our teachers are working, music teachers are working in the classroom, where it's really being done in a, in a holistic, full way? I think there are a lot of schools doing it, but I think it's been very purposeful in, on, on the part of the school administration um, to make room for that and to make time for that. And your point about the sort of pragmatic, practical concerns and how to implement something like this, and let's be very frank. We're talking about something that is kind of idealistic on many levels where the, we, we're just trying to get through the justification of the idea that implementation in reality is going to be a whole other ball of wax. And I think with research in this area, the same thing holds true. These are not the types of science studies that most people would put on the top five list of research studies that are <laughs> needing to be done. I, mean, people I want wonder to, why. <laughs> people want to cure for cancer. People want to cure the blind, et cetera, et cetera. That's all important, obviously. Yet, we have to start asking the questions, the proper questions, and start heading there. And eventually, we will have, you know, if, if we have the Mark Steiner Show in 100 years, we're not going to be talking about the same things right. when we talk about education. I hope not. I mean, I, I think that this makes, it's always been a discussion that has made sense, an idea that has made sense, that people say have worked, uh, and people have all kinds of anecdotal evidence. I know you're trying to find more than anecdotal evidence to say, look, this actually functions in a different way and makes our children uh, much more creative, problem solvers, bright kids who can also be good academicians. That, and that's a huge task that you have ahead of you to do that. Um, I, I'd be interested to kind of create a discussion with other educators with you all to kind of flesh that even more in a, in a larger way to see how the commitment is to make this happen. I know your commitment's there. <laughs> the question is making a larger commitment there. This is uh, always great to have uh, you all on the show. Marielle Hardy, it's always a pleasure to see you and have you on the show. Thank, Thank you so you, much. And Charles, I'm great to have you back again. Thank you so much. Dr. Charles Lim and Dr. Mariela Hardiman, and we will continue looking at this issue, which I think is very important uh, for the future of our children and our society. If we take the future seriously, what kind of society we want.